Good morning, church family. What a privilege to stand in front of you today, this morning. It's two weeks to Christmas. Twelve days, actually. I love Christmas. I love everything about Christmas. The songs, the carols, the tree. We've got our tree up in our living room. I love everything about Christmas. The eating. (laughs) But this year, as we celebrate Christmas, I would like to revisit the story of the prodigal son. Well, really, it's the story about the father. The extravagant father. The gracious father. Because Christmas is really about the father. Christmas is about the father running to us while we were yet a long way away. He ran to receive us for our sins. So today, with Christmas around the corner, I invite you to look at this parable again with a new set of eyes and see what the Lord has for us, new insight. And yeah, So let's get into it. Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. So if you want to turn to your Bibles and follow with me as we go through this parable. So why did Jesus tell this parable? Jesus told this parable in response to the Jewish leaders who were grumbling. They felt that Jesus had no right to associate with the sinners. So the parable was addressed to them. We see this in verses 1 to 2. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them. We know the story. It's a very familiar story. Verses 11 to 12, we see the younger son asked the father for his inheritance early. And inheritance is something you get only when the father is dead. So when the younger son asked for his inheritance, he was saying, I can't wait for you to die. Give me my inheritance now. So he treated his father as though he was dead. It is an act of dishonor and rebellion. He severed his relationship with the father. And then we read in verses 13 to 16. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and he moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and a man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pots he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. Verse 17 When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. So now he was tending to the pigs. For the Jews, the pigs are unclean animals. And to tend to the pigs would have been the lowest of the lowest of jobs. He was happy to eat the pigs' food, but no one gave him anything. So he came to himself and he decided to go back. Verses 18 to 19, we see that he had a speech rehearsed. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven 
in you. And I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. It is interesting to note that the son is trying to work himself back to the, to the father by being a servant. And then in verse 20, my favorite verse of the story. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son. For the father to see him coming meant the father was watching, waiting day and night, longing for his son to come home. And while the son was yet far away, the father runs to the son. In the Jewish custom, an elderly Jewish man never runs. To run, he has to pick up his robe, expose his legs, and then, which is, which is actually in those days a shameful and humiliating thing to do. This shows us how swift God is to show us mercy. God's arms are always extended, and he runs to embrace us. So he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. Kisses are only meant for family members. The Greek word says he kisses him much again and again. There is no thought in the mind of the father about the stench of the pigsty that will still be lingering over the boy. He's just so pleased to see him. He didn't wait to see what his son had to say for himself. He freely offered his grace first. Full restoration granted even before the son could confess or say anything. There is no lecture. I hope you've learned your lesson. No such thing. So after the father embraced his son and kissed him, the son starts his speech in verse 21. But you know what happened? The father literally ignores him, ignores what he has to say. He gives instructions to his servant. And in verse 22, we see three items given to the son. Father said to his servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. The Passion Translation says, Bring me the best robe, my very own robe, and I will place it on his shoulders. The best robe will belong to the father himself. The Greek word for robe is a long fitting gown, a mark of dignity worn by a king, person of rank, a sign of royalty, a sign of protection. So the robe, we, as we know, speaks of the son being restored to a place of honor. It speaks of the robe of righteousness that covers over the stench of sin. As children of God, we have the robe of righteousness, and we receive it by faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 9 for it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that anyone can boast, so that no one can boast. Isaiah 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness. The second item that was given to the son, the ring. Put a ring on his finger. 
The Passion Translation says, Bring the ring, the seal of sonship, and I will put it on his finger. It was the family signet ring. The ring speaks of the granting of authority to a person. In those days, rings were used to sign official documents. Often the ring had an impression on it, and when pushed into wax, was the official seal of the family. Joseph was given such a ring by Pharaoh when he was elevated to second in command in Egypt. What it means for us, he has given us authority. Luke 10, 19. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Not some, all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. And the third item given to the son, sandals for his feet. Sandals. This is to show that he was no longer a slave, no longer a servant, but a son. Slaves don't wear sandals. They go bare feet. So what it means for us? Galatians chapter 4, verse 7. Now we're no longer living like slaves under the law, but we enjoy being God's very own sons and daughters. And because we are His, we can access everything our Father has. For we are heirs of God through Jesus, the Messiah. John 14, 18. No, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. We are no longer slaves, no longer orphans. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. All these three items, the rope, the ring, and the sandals, are symbols of identity, identity of a child of God. All of us can identify with the younger son. We were once like the younger son, lost in rebellion, but now we have been found. God has restored our status as a son and a daughter. Full relationship, no payment required, no compensation needed. Full restoration. This is what the Father has done for us. He has given us an inheritance, the robe the ring and the sandals, signifying the robe of righteousness, his authority and our sonship. Then we read on in verse 23 to 24, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The father throws a party. So they began to celebrate. It's a celebration. It's a special location. God continues this theme throughout Scripture. In fact, it's interesting to note that there are many, many Scriptures in the Bible that talks about eating and feasting and drinking. I think it's because God knows we love to eat and we love, to, we love a party. Psalm 23, verse 5, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, 
the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of new, for, sorry, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meat and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. Henry Newman says this, God rejoices not because the problems of the world have been solved, not because all human pain and suffering have come to an end, nor because thousands of people have been converted and are now praising him for his goodness. No, God rejoices because one of his children who was lost has been found. Luke chapter 15, verse 7. I tell you in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So we see this first part of the story is all about the younger son, what was bestowed on him when he decided to return home. The story doesn't end there, though. The story continues. Let's read on verses 25 to 31. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working when he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants, what was going on? Your brother is back, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry, and he would not go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years I've slaved for you, never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. In all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes home back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf? His father said to him, Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. The Passion Translation said in the last part, everything I have is yours to enjoy. And from the message, you're with me all this time. Everything that is mine is yours. You see, the older brother, he has a problem with the idea of grace being given to the younger brother. The older brother thinks that there should be some compensation, some punishment, for the law-breaking younger son. He was jealous, and he was comparing himself with the younger brother. In his eyes, he proved to be a worthier son who demonstrated responsibility, obedience to his, to his father by working hard. He was blinded by his own self-righteousness, believing that his deeds deserved greater recognition from the father. He saw himself as a servant or slave to his father rather than a son working for the good pleasure of his father. I mean, we look at verse 29, the choice of words. He said, all these years I've slaved for you. He felt like a slave even in his father's house. William Barclay in his commentary says, 
His attitude shows that his years of obedience to his father had been years of duty and not of loving service. He was obedient for the wrong reasons, kept clinging to what he deserves from the father, rather than from the understanding that all that the father has is his. He did not know who he was, a beloved son, and his focus was on what he did and what he didn't do. Many Christians don't really know who they are in Christ or what they have in Christ. And for many years, this was me, many, many years. This was me, like the older brother. I call this the older brother syndrome. I've been born in a Christian family, went to church right from when I was a kid. I went to Sunday school every week. And in fact, every year, I would receive a prize for full attendance. That was me, you know, going to Sunday school, going to church, youth fellowship. In fact, I went to church every, every week. The only time I didn't go to church was when I fell sick. But so, yep, did everything, you know, by the book. Um, I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't do drugs. <laughs> I am a very good girl. I will, yeah. So, and so this was... <laughs> So this was me, faithfully serving the Lord as a, a young girl playing the piano. And, you know, when I was 16, I remember, you know, just, just loving the Lord and just, just serving him. But, and then I would look at other people, you know, maybe newer Christians who would come, you know, and I, I look at them, I hear the stories, and they've done some bad things. They've done some terrible things. And yet I see that they are blessed more than I am. They can do things better than I am. They have better, better spiritual gifts than I am. And I'm like, what's that about, Lord? You know, and I sound so much like the older brother. So this was me. I refer again to the verse I quoted earlier in Galatians chapter 4, verse 7. We're no longer living like slaves under the law, but we enjoy being God's very own sons and daughters. We enjoy being God's sons and daughters. Because we're his, we can access everything our Father has, for we are heirs of God through Jesus the Messiah. So it took me years, many, many years, to come out of that sense of entitlement, I guess, and, and always asking myself, why do I do what I do? Why do I pray? Why do I worship? You know, and it's because I love him. It's not because I have to. You know, but it's because I love him. It's coming back to that relationship with him that I am his daughter. I am his daughter. And all that the Father has is mine. All that the Father has is ours. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm has already been lavished upon us as a love gift from our wonderful heavenly Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus all because he sees us wrapped into Christ. That is why we celebrate him with all our hearts. That is why we celebrate Christmas. That is why we celebrate every Sunday when we come together. Now remember, Jesus is telling the story at a dinner full of religious people, the Pharisees. They felt that they had earned their place in heaven by their good works but they completely missed the grace of God. They thought they did not need his grace and kindness, and they lived their lives 
feeling like God owed them something for keeping all the commandments of the law. Jesus is telling the religious people that they are missing out on God's party. They are choosing to miss out. God is throwing a party. Everyone is invited. And a lot of those who are invited to the party aren't going to be there. Not because they were not invited, but because they excluded themselves. Religion causes us to miss out on what the Lord is doing. We see that very clearly in verse 27. He was angry. He refused to go in. He refused to go in. So we see that the youngest son represents the sinners, the lawbreakers, and then the older son represents the law keepers, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And it's interesting to note that grace was offered to both the sons. With the younger son, the father runs to him. With the older son, the father goes out. He leaves the party, he goes out, he talks to the older brother because he just refused to come in. Jesus did not give this parable to teach us how to live. I believe he gave this parable to correct our notions about who God is and who he loves. That same compassion that he has shown us, every one of us who are saved, he's watching and he's waiting to show that same compassion and love for his children who are lost. And when they return to him, he runs to them with open arms. He's not wanting to hear what they have to say. He rejoices that they are back. Those of us who have experienced the Father's love, and we all have, those of us who have experienced his acceptance and his compassion, and who are now his children, we are to show the Father's compassion and love toward all those who do not know him. Philip Yancey, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace? I'm sure many of you would have read that book. He wanted to know what people thought about Christians. So he asked people, when you hear the word Christian, what comes to mind? So this is what he wrote in the book. Mostly, he heard political descriptions, pro-life activists, gay rights opponents, or proposals for censoring the internet, and so on and so forth. Not once, not once did he hear a description redolent of grace. Apparently, that is not the aroma Christians give off in the world. There are many Christians who I can think of who embody grace. Yet somehow, throughout history, the church has managed to gain a reputation for its ungrace. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 7 to 9. God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us, as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ. Verses 8 to 9. God saved you by grace when you believed. You cannot take any credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. The same verse in the Passion Translation, it says, throughout the coming ages, we will be the visible display 
of the infinite, limitless riches of His grace and kindness. We will be the visible display of the infinite, limitless riches of His grace and kindness. In closing, as we celebrate Christmas, let us first of all remember that we are His sons and daughters. That's who we are. We are no longer slaves. We have the robe of righteousness, and He has given us His authority. That everything that the Father has is ours. We are home, and the Father celebrates us. And where is home, you might ask? Home is anywhere He is. Home is everywhere He is. A place of warmth, protection, comfort, security, and identity. A place where we can receive a sense of purpose and destiny and a reason to get out of bed in the morning. Home is a place we run to when things go wrong, the place where we can receive affirmation and encouragement, not so much for what we have done, but for whose son or daughter we are. Home is a place where we belong and cease striving and enter into rest. Secondly, let us remember that we are to embody grace. How will the lost know that our Heavenly Father is a compassionate, loving, and gracious Father? It is through us, His children, we who have experienced His love, His grace, and His compassion. Grace is Christianity's best gift to the world. We are to be the visible display of His grace and kindness. Let us represent him well. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you love us unconditionally. Thank you for seeking us out when we go astray. Lord, we can definitely identify with each character in this parable. We have been the prodigal son running away from you, yet you wait for us. And when we return to you, you run to us with open arms. You embrace us and you receive us back without any conditions. Father, we confess we have been the eldest entitled son. And in these moments, help us to see how much you love us for who we are. That we will not be blind and miss out on your celebration, your party. And finally, Lord, this Christmas, help us, strive, help us strive to be more like you, always responding in love and grace, no matter the cost, that we would represent you well to those who are lost, not judging or angry, but loving, gracious, and compassionate, full of mercy. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.